Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. For today, my sermon is entitled, The Season for Figs. The Season for Figs. As a boy, my family spent late summers at Granddaddy's Farm outside Edenton, North Carolina, not far from here. Sweet corn was on the table. Jars of crisp cucumber pickles filled the pantry. And the air, in the air was the dusty smell of cotton and peanuts. Now, it was time for watermelons. You probably have fond memories. Although we were hardly bigger than than the watermelons themselves, my brother and I would join the field hands to pick them. By late morning, when it was starting to get hot, just when the ripest, juiciest watermelon on the whole earth was being heaved up onto the truck, with a wink, the foreman would lose his grip, and it would crash to the ground and crack open. What a tragedy. Without wasting a second, we all had to stop and eat it. By early afternoon, my brother and I would stagger home, bloated and blotchy from a near-fatal dose of watermelon. Maybe for you it was strawberries going with your family to pick blueberries, or maybe it was apples, or perhaps you went cherry picking. Jesus sometimes went picking figs, but for him the memories were not always so fond. Once he paused by a fig tree to look for fruit, but he found only leaves, and like many a country boy, He muttered a hefty, damn it. But but you see, when Jesus says it, it happens. Now, let's take a closer look at this story in its broader context in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 11, the verses 1 through 22. We are so used to reading just little bits and pieces. I'd like to read the whole context here. So, bear with me. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. And as they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told him what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, 
and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. And then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Now, This story offends us. We have a romantic view of nature, and we value our trees for fruit, for nuts, for shade, for the oxygen they produce, for processing carbon dioxide, for erosion control, for quality of life. I work hard to get a tree to grow. For some people, it comes naturally. For me, it's work to get a tree to grow, and I value it when it finally does take root and produce. But how can Jesus just destroy a tree like this? How can it be that Jesus appears to almost to misuse his powers in in a fit of pique? And when Mark adds that it wasn't even the season for figs, well, that's pretty scandalous. 
the other gospel writers were uncomfortable with this episode as well. Matthew kept the story of the cursing of the fig tree in his gospel, but he left out that especially offensive comment that it was not the season for figs. Luke, he left the whole thing out of his, that whole episode out of his gospel, and instead he included a parable where a fruitless tree is given a second chance to bear. Well, what is happening? Well, it isn't cruel whimsy on Jesus' part. Mark's comment that it wasn't even the season for figs is supposed to be a hint to you and me that we need to look deeper for the meaning of it. We need to read between the lines. You see, it's Palm Sunday today, the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem to kick off his last week of life. And this story is intertwined, and I mean quite literally, with Jesus' triumphal entry. If you've noticed, it, the story bounces back and forth and back and forth in unexpected ways. So let's look at the context to make sense of what it is Mark wants us to understand. A little bit of historical background. Passover was coming when they celebrated the, the plagues in Egypt and how God delivered the Hebrews from slavery. Adult males were expected to celebrate the festival in Jerusalem. So pilgrims from the Jewish diaspora all around the world would make their way up to Jerusalem for over a week. This sleepy backwater of, oh, around 20,000 permanent residents would swell to over 120,000. Visitors would first go to the temple to begin the week-long process of purification to be ready for the festival day of Passover. In that first court of the temple, the court of women, they would purchase blemish-free sacrificial animals. Part of the proceeds of the sale went to the temple treasury. Part of the meat would usually go to the temple as well. But you could not buy with worldly money which then as now usually had engraved images of men or gods on them. And so the worldly money would have to be exchanged for sanctified temple money, temple coins, for a fee, part of which went to the temple treasury. And then any temple coins left over could not be taken home with you but they had to be exchanged back into worldly money, again for a fee, and again part of the proceeds went to the temple treasury. You see, the first, that first court was a very busy place, and there was a lot of money changing hands. And at Passover, business was good. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem the disciples are excited, expectant. Word spreads that the prophet from Galilee 
is coming and fellow pilgrims and townspeople hurry to greet him and accompany him into town. Some strew their garments before him. Uh, Think red carpet treatment. They sing the great Passover Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus rides straight to the temple. Now, at this point, both Matthew and Luke, Jesus' triumphal entry climaxes immediately in the cleansing of the temple when he drives out the vendors and the money changers, but not so in Mark's gospel. According to Mark, Jesus goes to the temple. He then looks around at everything, decides it's too late in the day to start anything. So he's just another Passover tourist gawking at the sacred architecture. He rides in with pomp and drama and nothing happens. He turns around, walks straight back, walks straight back to Bethany by the way he came in. It's the next day Jesus goes looking for figs out of season. Of course, he finds none. He curses the tree. And then you expect to hear how the tree shrivels up on the spot. That's what happens in Matthew's gospel. That's the way Matthew tells it, but not in Mark's gospel. Mark, again, leaves us hanging for the time being. Instead, Jesus now hurries back to the temple, this time on foot, and now he begins to drive out the businessmen who had turned God's house of prayer into a den of thieves. And then only after that, the next morning, the scene shifts back to the fig tree, which is now withered away to the roots. What is going on here? What is it? The way Mark is telling us this story, he wants not only to tell us what happened, he wants us to understand what it means in the way he tells it. You see, the temple and the fig tree, obviously, are intertwined, and that's Mark's point. That's why he specifically tells us it isn't the season for figs. What Jesus is doing is a symbolic action. It's a prophetic sign that interprets what's going on in the temple. You see, centuries before, the prophet Malachi had warned, the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. And the good religious folk of Jesus' day, they figured that meant that the Messiah would show up and reward them for being so good. But Malachi made it very clear that when the Lord showed up at his temple, it would be a day of judgment instead. He goes on, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire 
and like fuller's soap. So now, now the prophecy is fulfilled. The moment of judgment is at hand. Jesus comes looking for fruit, spiritual fruit. The temple was supposed to be a place of true spirituality, a house of prayer, where the simplest sinner can come face to face with a merciful God. But it's lost sight of its purpose. It's turned into an institution which exists merely to perpetuate itself. The business of worship, trading in sacrificial animals, exchanging unholy currency for temple currency, the temple tax, monumental building programs, and on and on, they've become the end in themselves. The business of the temple, well, is business. The time of reckoning, though, arrives. Jesus comes to the temple looking for spiritual fruit, but he finds only leaves. And God rejects the unproductive tree. The fig tree withers overnight. The temple, well, it takes a little longer. Forty years later, it is raised to the ground by the Romans, never to be rebuilt. It might not be the season for figs, but spiritual fruit should always be in season. The Apostle Paul often compared the church to a holy temple in Christ. It's therefore no surprise that churches struggle with the same temptation to measure religious faith in dollars and cents and in square feet. Now, some do it on purpose. You know, the thinking is great buildings, great budget must express a great faith, right? KPC has had its own unsuccessful experience with this kind of thinking. That those plans did not materialize is probably due to the grace of God. For others, the outcome was different. But that doesn't mean it was right. Dr. James Kennedy had no money in his budget for medical missions or for feeding the hungry, but he convinced his Coral Ridge congregation to devote $1 million just to build a slender steeple so it would stand taller than any other building or antenna in town. I can only imagine how many lives that money could have helped how many people could have been saved. Robert Schuler lavished over $8 million on an extravagant sanctuary of glass and steel. Ditto. Pastor in Charlotte 
persuaded his congregation to build a pink monstrosity eight stories high with full banqueting facilities and professional kitchen with choir elevators, a 500-seat chapel, and a 6,000-seat sanctuary soaring to a height of five stories. The $38 million, $38 million, uh, yes, $38 million mortgage ate up a quarter of a million dollars a month in payments. The pastor was hailed as a man of vision. But that's all leaves. Just leaves. $38 million worth of leaves. But is there any fruit? Church programs can confuse leaves and fruit as well. Most of the churches I've served have focused so much on simply repeating the same activities or programs each year that they lose sight of the whole reason for doing it. It's, we've always done it. Oh, we want our children to experience the same things we did. The problem is... They're doing it out of habit. Folks may be entertained, but there's no real lasting fruit. There's no sinners coming face to face with a merciful God. There's no changed lives. And the result is, as John Bright put it, a poverty-stricken church which utters no word, states no demands, summons us to no destiny, but has a host of activities you would enjoy. Finances, buildings, mortgages, capital campaigns, habitual programs may be useful, even at times necessary, but should never be allowed to become ends in themselves. That's just leaves. That's just an outer support structure to help a tree live so it can flower and bear fruit. The fruit, now that is a dynamic spiritual relationship with God. What Jesus, quoting Jeremiah, calls a house of prayer. The Apostle Paul also said that each one of us, each individual, you and me and you at home, that each of us are a temple of the Holy Spirit where God also dwells. You were a temple too, and like the fig tree and the Jerusalem temple it signifies, you are expected to bear fruit as well. We can get so caught up in activities, in busyness, even religious busyness, that we produce lots of leaves but little fruit. Pastors can be so busied with the mechanics of running a volunteer organization and planning theatrically satisfying worship experiences that we're too preoccupied for prayer, for worship, for 
personal Bible and devotional reading or for listening for work-unrelated service. Until the river, the river of living water, rarely more than a trickle anyway, dries up entirely. And church members, well, I've known many who were so busy with social ministries, they never developed a saving relationship with Christ in the first place. I've known others who devoted so much time to Bible reading and study that they grew spiritually obese, but never put it to practice in acts of loving service and kindness. And then, hardly anyone becomes intentional in witnessing boldly to what they've seen Jesus do in people's lives, to the result that unnumbered hungry souls are left unfilled. And sinners are left to languish in their sin and confusion. Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Many, many years ago, a devoutly Christian acquaintance of mine, Susan, in Clewiston, Florida, had a near-death experience in which she found herself then standing before a bright figure of light whom she knew was Jesus, and he led her through a review of her life. He was most interested in the times she had positively impacted the lives of others. And she saw herself going to church, listening to teaching tapes, reading books, studying the Bible, baking casseroles for church suppers. But she also saw the times she had not fed someone who was hungry, when she did not visit someone who was lonely, because she was just too busy or distracted. All the times she did not have a word of hope for the disheartened or forgiveness for the burdened. The times she did not point others to Christ or explain the good news to someone who was spiritually starved. The times she did not live up to what she knew was true and right. And as she looked into the eyes of Jesus, he sadly shook his head. Nothing but leaves, he said. But he sent her back to resume her life, now with a completely different perspective and purpose and passion. There was a lot of lost time to make up for and a lot of hurting people to help, to help. She understood it now. Jesus expects fruit. What kind of fruit is required of you will all depend on what kind of tree you have been called to be. You might be corn. You might be watermelon. I'm getting there. Just remember this principle, though. A changed life changes lives.
Let me say that again. A changed life changes lives. Regardless what tree you're called to be, that principle is going to determine your fruit. Jesus came looking for figs, found only leaves. The moment of judgment was at hand. The fig tree withered overnight. The temple eventually burned to the ground. And when Jesus comes looking for you, Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.